0: And the end of all things is near. Wow, what a title. That's enough to wake you up, put you into prayer. Amen? Let's pray together, and then we're going to go through the second part of 1 Peter chapter 4. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you that the Word builds our faith, Lord, and that you're here to minister that Word to us tonight and to renew our minds. Lord, teach us how to live for God. Teach us how to walk with God. Teach us how to respond to this word from 1 Peter 4 tonight. Now, will you just breathe a prayer of the Lord and say, Lord, open my eyes and open my understanding. Minister to me tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's good to have Brandon and all of them back here and Find the Rock is over with. And we've got some wonderful new things coming up in the future. We'll touch on that later. Now, the end of all things is near is taken straight out of uh, chapter 4, verse 7. And let's read together. I want you all to read this with me out loud. Preach it to me like you're the one up here. And let's uh, let the Word talk to us, all right? The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply, and now another version says fervently, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Think about that one. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anybody speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, preach it to me, and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You sound great on radio. All right, last time we saw that. Peter makes three statements in chapter 4 that that kind of jumped out at me uh, and made me want to teach this in a brief series on a Wednesday night. These three statements serve really as springboards to further instruction as to how we should live pleasing God and particularly in the last days before the day of the Lord. Now the first statement that Peter made was this one. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh arm yourselves also with the same mind or the same attitude or the same intent, the same preparation. We talked last week about that meaning that you live picking up your cross daily and walking with him, crucifying that flesh, which is not your body. Your body's not evil. The flesh is talking about that fallen nature. So when you read the word flesh, Greek word sarks, it means the fallen nature not your body. Say with me, my body's not evil. It's not in the best shape, but it's not evil. That's free. All right. The body's not evil, but the flesh, uh, that old nature, wants to pull you down and lead you to make decisions against the will of God. But now, we're to have the same mind. We talked about that last week. But this time, Peter provides a sobering statement. Let's read it again. The end of all things is at hand. Wow! What a statement! The saints of the first century eagerly anticipated the return of Christ in their own lifetime. It's easy to see that in the epistles. It had only been three decades since the Lord had stepped into the sky from the brow of Olivet. Surely they thought He would return in the lifetime of the Apostles because of what was going on the apostle john clearly believed and 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 some of the other disciples believed also uh, that jesus would return before john died said peter turned and saw this is after jesus told peter he was going to be uh... hung upside down on a cross they're gonna chain you up peter and they're gonna take you where you don't want to go and they're gonna do to you what you don't want done he was talking about how peter would die And we know that he died a martyr. We know that John did not. John was the only one of the twelve that did not die a martyr. But Peter, having heard this great news about his future, turned and looked at John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was tagging along. And this was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? That was John. John loved Jesus and um, just... That's the way he was known. And he said to Jesus at the table, who's going to betray you, Lord? Who's going to do it? Now, when Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? You've just told me I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be martyred. What about this guy? This isn't fair. I love Jesus' answer. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Now, that takes all envy and comparing yourself with other people out of the way. How many of you have ever said, but hey, what about them? Come on. Why, why am I going through this and they're not? Why do they have the new car and I don't? Why do they have that good job and they get raises and all this and I'm still struggling? What about them? Jesus says, what is that to you? Not only does that get rid of envy and comparison, but it lets us know that every one of us are distinctive to God. We are individuals to God. We're not the same. We're loved the same. But we all are individuals and distinctive before God. Now, he said, what is that to you? You just just worry about following me. Amen? Now, because of this, a rumor began to spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. Because Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come again, what is that to you? But he wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying that was going to be the case. He just said, what if? okay but now jesus did not say now this is john talking in his gospel jesus did not say that he would not die he only said if i want him to remain alive till i return what is that to you so as peter penned this epistle the neurotic persecution the persecution of the evil wicked emperor nero was in full force and it was bad it was bad Christians were being martyred by the droves. I told you last week, historical fact, they were being tied to stakes, covered with pitch, a flammable tar-like material, hoisted up and put into the ground in Nero's garden and lit. He was a psychopathic, maniacal tyrant, Nero. This is when Peter wrote the letter. So times seem very dark for the fledgling church. It is no wonder that Peter would exhort the believers that the end of all things is at hand. It looked that way. And if you look down through history, there's been many times in the last 21 centuries where it looked like the end of all things was at hand. All right, now this message of Christ's imminent return has been called the blessed hope Throughout its protracted time on this planet, and its time here has been protracted, they thought He was coming in their lifetime. We're 21 centuries down the road. goes to show you, a day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In Titus two eleven through 13, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to how many people? All people. And it teaches us to say what? No, to ungodliness and worldly passions. We talked about last week, that's the will of the Gentiles. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. How are we to live? We're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, while we wait for what? The blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Though it has tarried, it will certainly come. Folks, hear me tonight. And don't hear me. Hear the word of God. Though it tarry, In Noah's day, they thought he's just a nut. He's crazy. Building a boat in the middle of dry land. What's wrong with him? He was the neighborhood loony. But he had a word from God. And it took about 110 years for him to build that ark. I want you to think about that. 110 years of mocking, ridicule, disbelief. 110 years. And yet one day, one day, friend, one day, clouds gathered in the sky like they never had. And there was thunder and lightning and the rain began to fall. And you know the rest of the story. What he had preached and what it looked like God had tarried in doing finally came this is the way of the lord his ways are not our ways his time is not our time his thoughts are not our thoughts how many times i've said to kathy just watching the news or looking at some painful situation in life how many times i've said to her if i was god i'd wrap it all up but i'm not god and you can thank god i'm not god and i thank god you're not god Because God knows exactly when he's coming back. All right? So James says, Be patient then, uh, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. It's certain. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. All these verses, passages we're reading tonight, out of Peter and other places have to do with how then shall we live and respond waiting for the return of the Lord? All right? In the second letter, or in his, in his second letter, Peter brings up the return of Christ again. It's a repeated topic with him, along with a prophetic insight into the unbelieving, mocking attitude that will be prevalent in the last days. And friends, it's here. It's here right now you're about to see it. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 11. Above all, you should understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say things like this. Where is the promise uh, of his coming? Where is this coming that he has told us would take place? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing new is going on. There's never going to be a return of Christ. This is all a bunch of religious hype for fanatics. It's not for the level-headed reasonable of this world. But they deliberately forget, Peter goes on, that long ago, by God's Word, the heavens came into being. We talked about this Sunday. How did everything we see here taste, touch, and smell? How did it all get to be here? Not by evolution. How did it come? By God's Word. The heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. That's talking about Noah's flood. The, the world that then was was destroyed by a flood, and by the same Word, the same Word from the same God who said, I'm going to destroy this world by a flood, Noah built an ark. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved, not for water, but for fire. Being kept for what? The day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That day's coming. And when I read verses like this, I say, Oh God help me to walk in peace, help me to walk right with you, because you see, don't let anybody kid you. The same word that was accurate and said, no, I'm going to destroy it all. You're going to see it. I'm going to save you. And anybody that believes you, nobody did. That same word, but it's not going to be fire again because he made a covenant with Noah. I'll never destroy the earth again with a flood, but he didn't say fire. And this world is being reserved by the very Word of God awaiting a day of judgment. And in that judgment will be the destruction of the ungodly. This puts the fear of the Lord in you. And anybody listening by radio, let me tell you, here today or by radio, hear me carefully. If you're not walking with God, if you've resisted Christ, if you've spurned His grace, there's a day of judgment coming. It's coming as surely as you're listening to my voice right now. It's marching toward us by the day. Get right and get right quickly while you can. Peter goes on, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Well, that answers this long wait, doesn't it? A thousand years, ten centuries. It's been 2,100 years. What is that to God? A blank. A thousand years is just like a day to God because he doesn't live in time. He lives in eternity. We alone are subject to time. God lives in eternity. Eternity past, eternity future. Where you're going, he's already there. So God lives in eternity, so a thousand years is just a day to God. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, Peter said, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Here's why he's waiting 21 centuries, not wanting anybody to perish, but he wants how many people? Everyone. Say it again, everyone. So so it's not that some are chosen to be saved and some are chosen to be lost, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. The Lord's seeming delay is in order that many more may have the opportunity to be saved because eternity is a long, long time. Nevertheless, Peter goes on and closes out, the day of the Lord is coming like a thief. How's a thief come? Thief comes in the night. The thief comes when no one expects it. The thief comes when you're taken by surprise. When the thief has come and gone, you only discover he's been there afterwards and everything has been stolen. He's coming like a thief. You think you know when he's going to come, but you don't know. He said the day of the Lord is coming like a thief. The heavens are going to disappear with a roar. That's talking about the earthly atmosphere. Will disappear with a roar. And the elements, that's talking about the, the, the rudiments of the world. These chairs, the, the dirt, the, the everything that man has built. Look, the earth and everything done in it or built in it will be laid bare, will be burned up. Now, please understand, church, that God is not going to do away with this world. He's going to renovate this world. And He renovates it by everything has been tainted by sin. Everything has been tainted and stained by sin. And and God says, I'm going to burn it all up. I'm going to burn it up and start over. But I'm not going to do away with this world that I created. He said, that's good. But he's going to do away with every remnant and residue of sin. The elements, the great cathedrals, the great skyscrapers, the buildings, the masterpiece works of art. Everything will be burned up. And everything done by man is going to be laid bare. It's coming. I guarantee you by the Word of God, it's coming. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, this is the question of the night. What kind of people ought you to be? Or put another way, how then shall we live? In light of these things that are coming. How then shall we live? Well, that's what we're dealing with. It's this very question Peter takes up in chapter 4. In light of the Lord's imminent return, how shall we then live? Now, Peter begins by telling us something that we must know. Here's what you need to know in light of these things. We are urged to know that we must be sober, watchful, and prayerful. Sober means to think and act discreetly. To use sound judgment and moderation the very thought of Christ returning has a purifying effect on the Christian did you know that? that's why boy if you ever walk into a church and they don't believe in the return of Christ anymore you need to turn around and walk right back out quicker than you walked in because that's apostasy the return of Christ is the blessed hope, has been for 21 centuries and it's the blessed hope of every genuine Bible believing Christian so the very thought of Christ returning is going to purify you. John said in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, we know that when Christ appears, we're going to be like him. For we will see him as he is. And everybody that has this what in them? Hope. Hope of what? His return purifies themselves just as he is pure. When, I, uh, when my parents would go on vacation when I was a kid, got a little bit older, a teenager, I used to say to them before they'd leave, when, when are you coming back? they say, you think we're going to tell you when we're coming back? Because we know what you'll do. Six hours before we're back, you'll clean everything up. We're not telling you when we're coming back because we know that if you think we could come at any time, it's going to purify you. It's going to keep the fear of mom and dad in you. That's why Jesus has never given us a date. If somebody gives you a date and they say, I've done all the Bible, Bible numerology, I've got this figured out, been there, done that, seen fools made of all of them, no one knows the day or the hour, except the Father, Jesus said, and he's not telling. Now, as for watching and praying, so, so sober means alert. Watching and praying takes it further. Peter could remember His own abysmal failure to do just that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember Jesus said, come on guys, come with me and and watch and pray with me. Peter and the rest of them failed. A few hours after sleeping through Jesus' greatest trial, Peter tragically denied the Lord. Don't know him, don't know him. Blankety, 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 blank, don't know him. Went out and wept bitterly. Couldn't believe he could do it. Well, Jesus attributed his weakness to not praying and not watching. Now watch this carefully. Watching sights the enemy. Praying fights the enemy. You know that I love birds and I've got a lot of feeders in my backyard and I've turned in an old softy as I've gotten older. I I love birds, love dogs, love God's creation. Uh don't worship it, but I do greatly appreciate it. Now, I have a lot of feeders out there, and I watch those birds all the time. You know what I've noticed about those birds? They watch me. They are the best watchmen you'll ever see. You you watch these little sparrows sitting in the bushes. They see you put bird seed in one of those feeders. Their heads are constantly moving around. Even while they're eating, they'll grab a piece of seed and look around. They're always moving. What are they doing? I know I'm in a world of danger because hawks fly over. And they can spot that hawk from, from a couple of blocks away and they flee. They are always watching for the enemy. Not paranoid, but realistic. Have you ever seen a hawk? Get one of them. It's sad. So they don't want that happening. They know they've got an enemy. Listen, you have an enemy. I have an enemy. And watching, being watchful, you got to be like those little sparrows even on your finest day, most peaceful day, when everything seems to be going great, you better be watchful. Not paranoid, but realistic. Because watching sights him, praying fights him. With Satan walking around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour, no wonder the apostle urged God's people to be vigilant in prayer. Because once you sight him, you got to fight him. And how often have we been in prayer and the Holy Spirit has warned us about something and said, you know what? I'm going to show you something. Here's the enemy. He's trying to do this to you. The enemy has something planned here. So I want you to pray it through. And you pray it through. Once he's sighted, you fight him with prayer. That's the way the believer is supposed to live. Watching, praying, alert. Now, next, Peter tells us, what we must show. He says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. Notice the word fervent. For love will do what, everyone? Cover a multitude of sins. Does that mean that we cover for people so they can lie about sinning? You know, like you know somebody, you got a buddy that, who's married and they're out seeing somebody else and you think that means if you love them, you'll cover for them? Is that what it means? No. It means love forgives And love will cover, as you forgive, a multitude of sins. You know what what Peter knew? In the church, you got saved sinners. And there's going to be some messes. There's going to be some transgression. There's going to be some falling. There's going to be some error. There's going to be some mistakes. And you're going to have to have not just love, but fervent love for one another. Now, first he quotes uh, an old Hebrew proverb in Proverbs ten twelve: Hatred stirs up strife, but lover, love covers all sins. He pulled that from Solomon. Love covers all sins. The word for fervent is powerful. Do You know that I found that it's only in one other place in the entire New Testament, the Greek word that we translate into fervent. It's used one other time, and it's in connection with Peter's imprisonment by Herod. Peter was to be executed the next morning, if you'll remember, in the book of Acts. But it says, prayer was made for him without ceasing. That, that is a phrase that means fervently. The, the without ceasing, without stopping, n- it was never let up on, is a way of describing fervency. They were fervently praying that their leader would not be martyred. They did not want to be a church without Simon Peter. So they prayed. And you know the rest of the story, the angels appeared... He was so at peace with things. He was asleep. The angel had to hit him with a sword to even wake him up. The prison doors flew open. He walked through. He couldn't believe that it was real. He went knocking on the door of the house of the very people that were praying for him. And when they looked out and saw that it was him, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe the answer of their own prayers. They were in there praying without ceasing fervently. And when God answered, they didn't believe it. That encourages me. That tells me that with imperfect faith, you can have a great miracle. So fervent means to be extended or stretched out. If you love somebody fervently, it will stretch your love. Anybody in here married? Can I have an amen from the married folks in here? How many of you know a successful marriage takes two good forgivers and stretched out Love, Because you realize in about a year or two, you ladies, you realize that he's not the prince you thought he was. And you discover that he got all kinds of flaws and, 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 and vice versa. And you realize that if I'm going to really love someone, it's got to be stretched out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to require that love to be stretched, tested, pulled on, enlarged, strengthened, matured. That's the kind of love we're supposed to have for one another. Now, let me ask you a million-dollar question. Do you see that in the church? you see that kind of love in the church? Some, do you see it in the church at large? I mean, is, it just, is the church just, just shining with this kind of love? No. It, usually you see this love with mature believers who have allowed the Lord to actually truly grow them up. They're able to show that kind of love extended, stretched out. The Christians Peter was writing to were in a world filled with hate and malice toward them. There must be among themselves, therefore, fervent love, agape, 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 love, intense love, love that goes out of its way to be thoughtful, kind, and forgiving, being gentle with one another's failings. Because you're going to see people in this room fail. What are you going to do with that? Well, I'll just go find another church. Well, good luck. God bless you. Because when you get there, you're there. And you're going to fail there. And they're going to fail too. Matter of fact, can I tell you, you're not going to find a perfect one until you're in heaven and our flesh is gone. Until then, we've got to have fervent love among ourselves. If you can't find it here, you're sure not going to find it out there. Being gentle with one another's failings, forgiving each other. Do you know that agape, agape, agape does not require feeling? Agape has to do with choice, not feeling. You don't sit around and wait for a loving feeling to necessitate you loving someone. It's a choice to love them in your actions. And you'll find that when you act like you do, the feelings follow. Agape is not dependent on feeling. It's dependent on your will, your choice. Peter may have been thinking about Jesus' words to him, that he should be prepared and willing to forgive an offending brother, not just seven times, but seven times 70, 490 times in one day. That's one long fighting day, 490 times in a day. That is what we must show. Calvary love. The love of the indwelling Christ of God. Now next, Peter tells us what we must shoulder. Cheerfully use hospitality with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Uh Uh-oh, there's a word that not everybody likes. Hospitality. Uh, Another version, I think the New King James and the King James says without grumbling. So he knew he was dealing with people who really were not thrilled to have folks over. Not everybody likes hospitality. I know people that love hospitality. I know people you can't get in their house. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. I'm just. That, this is the hardest part of care ministry, life ministry. It's not finding a life leader, it's finding a host home. Can, can we come in and meet? It, it's hard to find. But he says, I want you to use hospitality, be hospitable without being a grumbler. Don't let them in with that look on your face that you don't want them in. The Greek word for hospitality means literally be friendly to strangers. It embraced particularly the needs of Christians who in their travels in the first century needed a bed for the night or they needed a meal. Because in Peter's day there was no public welfare. Overflowing love would find many opportunities to minister to the needy In the realm of hospitality. Not only that, but while there were little inns and uh, that traveling believers could use all along the winding Roman highways and in the big cities of Rome, Nero's spies were everywhere. If you were a believer and you went into a little inn or into a major city, it was so bad in Nero's time; he had people everywhere out looking for Christians. And you did not want Nero's men to find you. So this necessitated Christians being hospitable to each other. Okay? Danger and temptation abounded for traveling Christians. On the other hand, it was dangerous to open one's house to strangers. It is dangerous. It was dangerous then. It's dangerous now. But this was a risk to be encountered and discounted. When opportunity arose to help a traveling Christian. Now in our day, i got to say several things here. i got to teach this word carefully. Because you can really be foolish and let someone in um, that you shouldn't. So let me just give you some tips here. First, an unmarried person should not open his or her home to a member of the opposite sex also traveling alone. Everybody get that? You do get that. All right? Why? because it would transgress the admonition, abstain from all appearances of evil. If for no other reason, don't look bad. All right? Now, I want to also say that if you're looking at bringing somebody in, being hospital by actually bringing them in and letting them stay, you ought to be free to ask questions like, where are you from? What's your church home? What brings you here? Can I call your pastor? Can I call somebody from your church? Well, Pastor Jeff, that's being kind of paranoid. Yep, it is. We live in a dangerous day where people are more times than not, not who they tell you they are. And you've got to use wisdom. Anybody who's right, who, who's walking right, won't, won't mind scrutiny at all. The wisdom of God and truth don't mind scrutiny at all. Sure, call my past. Sure, call you know my mom, my dad, somebody. Verify who I am. I don't care. I only care if I've got something to hide. Okay? Because they're coming into your casa. Um. And there is also nothing at all wrong with verifying what they've said. Make a few phone calls. Say, hang on a minute. Let me just make a few calls and and call a couple of my own friends and you keep something like this where others know what you're doing and you're not doing this alone where if something were to happen to you nobody would know we live in a day church where wisdom demands accountability it really does you should be accountable somebody should know your stuff Somebody ought to know you real good, know the way you come and go, especially if you're single and there's nobody in your life who's there to watch you. Bring people in who know your ways, who, who, who watch for you. In short, be hospitable, but at the same time, wise as a serpent, Jesus said. Gentle as a dove, wise as a serpent. Even so, hospitality was a key characteristic of the first century believers. Peter knew all about accepting such gracious hospitality. He recalled the time he accepted the hospitality of Simon the Tanner in the seaport of Joppa. Remember that? And God spoke to him while he was in that house, having been received by Simon. And God told him in a dream to accept the hospitality of a Roman centurion in Caesarea, and it threw open the door of the church to the Gentiles. And how did all that happen? Simon the Tanner let him into his home. Hospitality is powerful. Memories in Peter's mind of hundreds of homes in which he had been entertained flooded his mind as he now wrote urging believers to be hospitable. So Everybody say with me, hospitable. Say with me, hospitality is of God when mixed with wisdom. Now finally, Peter shares or tells us what we must share What we should show, what we should shoulder, now what we should share. As each one, he goes on, says in verse 10, as each one has received a gift. Now everybody perk up and look at this. This each one, you're one of the each one. You're here. And what is it telling us about you and me? We have received what? A gift. What kind of gift? A spiritual gift. He says, as every one of you, each one, there's no exception, has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. First, Peter is very clear. Every believer has been given a spiritual gift for the blessing of others. Every believer. Look at your neighbor and say, that means you. You've got a gift. You've received a gift. Well, I don't feel very gifted. Well, you're gifted. That matter what you feel and it is God's grace that empowers us to employ our gift we have no grounds to be proud of the gifts God's given because they're all received sovereignly from the Holy Spirit he says in another place he says, what are you boasting for you didn't have anything to do with your gift you received it gifts are received and they are bestowed so it's nothing to be proud about I discovered when, when I got saved, I got saved in juvenile home, as many of you know, most of you know. As a 16 year old kid, I was in there for sale of narcotics, scared to death, lost, raised uh, outside of church. I'm from the church of the pagans. I knew no church until I was 16. And I got saved in juvenile home. A couple of years later, I had a powerful experience with the Holy Spirit that just revolutionized my life. Now, not that salvation didn't. Salvation definitely opened the door, but I, I went to a Bible study where the Holy Spirit was really moving, and I got mightily touched. And almost immediately, God began to stir up in me a holy, burning desire to teach and to preach His Word. Almost immediately. Matter of fact, in my birthday in June, I will have been preaching 40 years. Forty years, and that's something. So most of my life, I've been preaching and teaching the Word of God, and I love that because I didn't get started late; I got started early. And I remember the first message. I remember I got asked to teach a Bible study. I didn't, I never even got through high school. Don't let that freak you out. I did finish college. I I went and got a GED and went all the way through a doctorate. But at the time, I hadn't even finished high school. And but I opened up that Bible. I'll never forget it. Matthew 13, ju- the parable of the sower, jumped out at me. And that was my first message. I had no training. How do I do this? It was a gift. It's just a gift. I'm a one-gift guy. I don't have a bunch of them to answer for. But see, upon that encounter with the Holy Spirit, look what happened. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same what? And there are differences of ministries, but the same what? And there are different kinds of service, but it is the same. Do you notice he mentioned the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, and Father God. He, he went through the Trinity in those two verses. Spirit, Lord, God. It's the same God who is working all in all. This is within his church. Now watch. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to who? Each, come on, church. Each one. There it is again, that phrase. Each one. For the profit of who? The rest of the church. The rest of the church. Now, verse 11 says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one. There's that phrase again. Individually, how does he do it? What did I tell you? You are distinctive in the eyes of God. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit came into your life and individually he gifted you as he willed it was the Spirit of God's choice what to give you when a person is born again the Holy Spirit distributes a spiritual gift according to his will the will of the Holy Spirit this clearly shows the Holy Spirit is not a force or some kind of mist or some random power The Holy Spirit is a person with all the faculties of a person. Feelings. He can be grieved. He can rejoice. He makes decisions. He decides what gifts will be yours and so forth. That Spirit is here tonight opening your mind and opening your heart to the Word of God. Teaching you. Peter tells us that we have a responsibility before God to be good stewards of our gifts. The phrase good stewards comes from a word that primarily refers to an estate manager. A manager is held accountable for what he does with the things entrusted to his care. And as believers, we have received gifts from God. And what does God tell us? Now you're the manager of it. You're the manager of it. I can't answer for your gift and you can't answer for mine. I'm going to answer for how I managed my gift. You're going to have to answer to God for how you manage the gift He gave you. Did you use it? Did you lose it? Did you let it lie dormant? Did you stir up the gift of God that's within you? What'd you do with it? Because you got a gift. Say with me good and loud like you're preaching to me. I have a gift. gift. Let God's Word be true and every man a liar. You've got a gift. And our gifts are to be like the Sea of Galilee. I love this. The Sea of Galilee receives water from above itself and then redistributes those waters all around below, watering vegetation and blessing the land. The Sea of Galilee receives water in, gives water out. That's supposed to be you and me. You didn't get blessed just for you. You got blessed, it came in, he wants it to go out. That's where real living takes place. You think this is work for me up here? This is my food. I love giving out because I know it's going to come back in. But you know what? The Dead Sea is different. The Dead Sea receives abundant waters from the Jordan River, but it doesn't redistribute the waters back. And that's why it's dead. You got these people, they're bless me people. They're going to, going to all the special meetings. They major on getting blessed. What do you do? Oh, I'm getting blessed. Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to another meeting. Nothing wrong with meetings, but they, they live to be blessed. They live for the next thrill and spill in, 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 in the move of God. I say, well, how many people have you reached for Jesus this year? Oh, I'm, you know, not I don't think anybody, but I, I sure have gotten blessed. Listen, the Dead Sea is dead because water from the Jordan comes in, but it does not go out. And its waters are therefore devoid of life, acidic, bitter, and they yield nothing but salt. What are you? Are you a Dead Sea or are you a Sea of Galilee? Sea of Galilee. Amen? Finally, Peter tells us we ought to sharpen something. We'll close with this. Suffering for Christ, and that's what this chapter 4 is about. It begins with suffering and ends with suffering. Suffering for Christ should sharpen our ministry of the Word. Number one, if anybody speaks, he ought to speak as the oracles of God. Oracles comes from the Greek word logos, which is a divine utterance. It's used of all the Old and New Testament scriptures. And Peter is saying that when you suffer for Christ, it ought to sharpen your ministry in the Word. Remember last week we closed with Peter talking about those who came to Jesus and All their old friends mocked them and ridiculed them and slandered them and said all manner of evil against them. They were suffering for the name of Christ. Well, that suffering ought to sharpen the word coming out of you. We should speak with Holy Spirit, illumination, and divine authority. I've noticed when I go through fire, I always come out on the other side preaching better, preaching stronger, preaching with greater results. It sharpens. Now, secondly, suffering for the name of Christ should sharpen our ability to wait upon God. Anybody in here ever suffered because you got ahead of God? Anybody ever run ahead of God? Okay. How many of you have run ahead of God and suffered enough for that that you've learned to be still and wait on God? You know, suffering has a way of putting a good, healthy fear of the Lord in you where you say, you know what, I'm not moving until you tell me to. When you tell me to, I'll do it. But I'm not moving until then. If anybody ministers, let him do so as with the ability that God supplies. Minister comes from the Greek word meaning to serve, to render service, to wait upon someone or to care for their needs. So when it says we ought to minister with what? The energy, the power that God supplies. It's talking about waiting upon God for His sending and His anointing. Without a, without a no, do not go. Amen. It's used of the strength of God given to believers through His mighty Spirit. When you wait upon God, He says, this is the way, this is what I want you to do, go do it. Then you've got to know, K-N-O-W. Then you can go. Where God guides, God provides, but until then, you sit and you wait on Him. And then finally, suffering for Christ ought to sharpen our perception About the worship of God. He says, In all things God should be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord and as unto the Lord and not unto men. The goal of all ministry, whether it's the ministry of God's word or the ministry of good works, is to bring praise and glory to God your whole life is an act of worship. Can we stand together? Here's a summary. In light of Peter's declaration, the end of all things is at hand, how shall we then live? Read them with me real quickly. We are to know to be sober, watchful, prayerful. We are to shoulder the ministry of hospitality. We are to share the gift the Holy Spirit gave to us and our salvation. We are to sharpen our ministry of the Word, our service to the Lord, and our glorification of Him in all things. Amen. Give Him a hand of praise tonight, can you? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Next week, be not amazed at the fiery trial which has come upon you. All right, let's pray together. Father, We want to do what you have said in this word. Help us, Lord, to be alert, watchful, prayerful. Help us to sharpen our walk with you and our waiting upon you and our ministry of the word. Help us, Lord, to shoulder that responsibility and that calling of being hospitable. Help us, Lord, to share the gift you've put within us for the edification of the body of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing before we go tonight.